0: Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash B-O-F, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash B-O-F to take your retail business to the next level today. shopify.com slash B-O-F
4: Before we get started on this week's episode, I want to tell you a little bit about B-O-F Professional, our global membership community from the business of fashion, which keeps you up to date with everything you need to know about the global fashion industry. For a limited time, we are offering BOF podcast listeners an exclusive 25% discount on an annual BOF professional membership. For more details, click on the episode notes.
5: The West Coast, for whatever reason, and maybe it's because it's so hard to raise out here, we just don't end up raising that much and we have to become profitable faster.
6: You all came from the outside into these really established industries. What do you think the advantage has been?
7: I couldn't believe the lack of representation within the industry, not just from a product point of view, but from a leadership point of view and from a creative point of view.
2: All companies need to figure out how to use technology, not just to succeed, but like to exist in the future.
5: I think whenever you tread down a new path, you have to be somewhat naive, because otherwise you take the path that everyone else is taking.
4: Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion, and welcome to the BOF podcast. This week, we are taking you to the West Coast, namely Los Angeles, where we recently gathered industry leaders from beauty, fashion, technology, and entertainment to talk about the forces that are reshaping these industries and interconnecting them together. So much of this action is happening in California, so there was nowhere better to hold our inaugural BOF West Summit. There were several conversations we held, but this week I want to start with our creative entrepreneurs on the West Coast discussion, which included Stitch Fix's Katrina Lake, Everlane's Michael Pressman, and Beautycon's Moj Madara in conversation with BOF's chief correspondent in New York, Lauren Sherman. Each of these entrepreneurs has built their businesses with their headquarters in California. We wanted to know why and to learn about the opportunities and obstacles they have faced along the way. So here's creative entrepreneurs on the West Coast from the BOF West Summit.
6: Hi, everybody. I'm Lauren Sherman. I am the chief correspondent in New York for Business of Fashion. Um, It's so nice to see all of you as Many of you in the audience know I will do anything to take a trip to Los Angeles. So a big thanks to Imran and Kayvon and the BOF team for making BOF West happen. And thank you to all three of you for being here. Um, I think to start, you're all based on the West Coast. It'd be really interesting to hear what the issue in your market that you're trying to solve, the problem and why you had to solve it here in, in Los Angeles, or SF, or, or what have you. Moe, you want to start since sure. you're in LA? We sure. Hi,
7: everybody. Um, the issue we're trying to solve is, I think a couple of things. First is the reinvention of beauty, and really what beauty means to a Gen Z audience that thinks about ethnicity, diversity, and gender pretty differently than generations previously. Um, there really wasn't a platform out there that was curating commerce and content for younger audiences. So that was sort of issue number one. But I think um, what we really wanted to think about was the intersection of commerce and content. And LA is the home of entertainment and content. um, And not that far from us is the home of technology. And so could the marriage of two make sort of a new commerce experience for people that are thinking about beauty
6: through very different lenses? Yeah. Katrina, why did you feel like you needed to be an SF and not New York or even Silicon Valley?
2: Yeah. So um, at Stitch Fix, what we do is really the problem we're trying to solve is this idea of there are millions of jeans on the planet or there are millions of dresses on the planet and which ones are the best fit for me. And so at the heart of what we do is recommendations and personalization. Um, and so, you know, I think honestly, when I first started, I thought maybe we need to be in New York because all the brands are there. And it became clear that you could have a business here in California and in our case in San. Francisco and there was a really significant advantage when we have um, over 90 data scientists we have over a hundred software engineers and this is you know the, being close to Silicon Valley and being close to where all the innovation is happening um, I think was actually ultimately critical for our business and I don't know that we would have had that access to talent on the East Coast Michael what about you
5: uh, a bit with Katrina here I actually lived in New York uh, prior to starting Everlane and I remember, um, I've always felt like in New York, there's a bit of this mentality that people, um, there's a lot of criticism around ideas. And in on the West Coast, I think there's a bit more openness. Um, and Everlane was born out of this idea that the retail industry needed to bring transparency um, and sustainability into the business model. And we did that, um, I think if we had been in New York, um, it would have not allowed us to think so differently um, and so open-minded. Uh, and in top of that, br- building our entire tech stack, all of it, um, the West Coast, I think, is much more uh, open in that way.
6: Was it helpful to you to be near the Gap, who you're essentially
5: disrupting? <laughs> I, look, Levi's, Gap, uh, Basics Brands, uh, there's something about being on the West Coast and the casualization that's happened and always was here that... Uh, is also so relevant now. And I don't think it's, that, that it's helpful being next to the gap. It's that San Francisco or the West Coast allows those sorts of brands to come to life. Whereas in New York, it's all fashion and all trend.
6: What about when it comes to raising money? Katrina, when you kind of went out to VCs in Silicon Valley, what was that like?
2: Um, it was definitely not easy. Um, and it was at a time I was raising really between 2011 and 2013. I don't know if my mic, there, I'll I'll face this way. (laughs) Um, And that was a time when I think venture capitalists were very, um, there just wasn't an obvious way to win in fashion. And so um, people were very scared of inventory. People would give, we would take venture money and buy women's dresses with it. And that was something that venture capitalists were very uncomfortable with and they wanted to buy software engineers or apps. Um, So that was hard. The fact that most VCs are men who just like can't wrap their head around um, the challenges I think that especially women find when they're shopping was a challenge um, and there just weren't a lot of proven success stories before um, and so it wasn't easy for us to raise money um, in the end I think it was a really great um, well it doesn't kill you makes you stronger kind of thing because at the end of the day stitch fix is now a business that's doing a billi- over billion over a billion dollars in revenue and we only raised 40 million dollars and so you know to be forced to figure out how are you going to do more with less, um, ended up being a really powerful part of our business.
6: Did you raise from traditional investors or did you have to go outside of the, the traditional group that you know, a lot of other startups around that time were going with?
2: I mean, it was also, I mean, it'll be interesting to hear Michael's perspective too, because we started kind of around the same time. Um, I mean, I really only had two, two big investors and one smaller investor. I have like exactly three people on my cap table, which is very different than what Michael did. Um, and our, for our later rounds were, we sorry. took
5: money from anyone we could.
2: <laughs> our later rounds were from, if anyone
5: um, has a check, please, we'll take it.
2: <laughs> Michael's full of it. He won't take your checks. That's, That's true. true. We've tried. We have to both That's tried. <laughs> um, but I our later rounds were from Benchmark, who's behind Uber and you know, all the big Silicon Valley, and actually our first angel investor was also. So we raised more from kind of a traditional venture background. Um, but I talked to everybody. I mean, I was rejected by fifty-some VCs. So I was rejected by, you know, angel investors and traditional VCs and non-traditional VCs all alike.
5: I think there's a lot of skepticism, and it's getting better, and I'm sure um, you know, we're part of that, but there's a lot of skepticism for fashion um, and f- for commerce businesses. On the West Coast, it's always they want marketplaces. We don't want any inventory, we don't want any risk, we just want it to all work and you know, become a multi-billion dollar. And there's all, you know, Retail is hard. It's a lot of work, and that's not as conventional on the West Coast, so raising money is tough.
6: And you haven't raised that much, especially for an apparel company.
5: Yeah, I don't think any of us has. I, you know, we were talking about this. It's, we've raised 20 million, you've raised uh, just over 40. The West Coast, for whatever reason, and maybe it's because it's so hard to raise out here, we just don't end up raising that much and we have to become profitable faster.
6: Moj, what kind of investors have you looked at? Are they strategic? Most of them are based here, right?
7: Most of them. I mean, we have a good um, array of both West Coast and East Coast. Um, Originally in 2014, I think I had to bankroll the first nine months of the company myself um, because I was coming into a company that someone else had founded Um, and it was in the middle of the renaissance of multi-channel networks in LA with Maker and all these big YouTube brands that were sort of had a high price tag um, to live up to, and uh, the marketplace wasn't necessarily bearing those fruits yet. So we had a really hard time raising that first, I think it was a million and a half dollars. I think it took me nine months. Wow. probably met with um, probably a hundred people. Um, and so since then, we've raised money from traditional media brands, as well as a lot of family offices and high net worth folks. So. Um, now it's pretty well-rounded between some venture, some strategic, and um, a lot of traditional Hollywood personalities,
6: I would say, like management companies and agencies and such. So you all came from the outside into these really established industries that work a certain way. What do you think the advantage has been that you had not been in retail for 20 years working up one of those programs? or? an apparel seller for even 10 years or gone through the Macy's program or something like that. Moj, I know it's a little different for you, but.
7: I mean, I think you, as someone who doesn't wear makeup, had never worked in beauty, came into the beauty industry really unaware of um, uh, the enormousness of the industry. Um, And so I think when you come into something newly, you see something, pain, like for me it was very obvious that there was really an absence of communicating with consumers that were beyond um, you know what you were seeing on the cover of a Vanity Fair or Vogue, right? There was sort of a beauty industry that it sort of aligned itself towards a specific identity and everyone else was sort of unrepresented. And so um, for me, when I looked at Beautycon, the opportunity was to really evolve a brand around um, ethnicity, diversity, and really thinking about beauty from like a, an expression of more uh, like power and creativity. So I think that in itself for me, um, it just I couldn't believe the lack of representation within the industry, not just from a product point of view, but from a leadership point of view and from a creative point of view. So, I mean, I don't know that I would have seen that had I been in the beauty industry for 20 or 30 years.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I I think it was a huge advantage. And um, when I was pitching the idea of Stitch Fix, like Stitch Fix is this crazy business where we are technically e-commerce, but no one is choosing the things that show up at their home. And I would talk to people who've been in the industry for decades and decades, and they were like, I don't get it. So the customer's not choosing? And I'm like, no, they're going to work with a stylist, and the stylist will send things. And I mean, there was just like a a disbelief that it was possible that was ingrained um, for people who'd seen a lot and who'd seen that retail was hard and who'd seen, you know, people try interesting things and fail and so, um, you know, I think the flip side of that, people would say to me, this is an inventory nightmare. You're going to have to stock everything so that you'll have whatever thing somebody wants and it was ended up being good advice because the inventory element is enormously hard about Stitch Fix and so it forced us to focus on the right things early, Um, but I think i was really blessed to not have a uh, to have this unbounded sense of what's possible because i had never done it before and because maybe i didn't know how hard it was going to be um and so i don't i don't think that i would have had had the guts to try this if i had as deep of industry knowledge as many people have
5: i think whenever you tread down a new path you have to be somewhat naive because otherwise you take the path that everyone else is taking um, and, I, and that I think applies to all of us. We, we do transparent pricing, which means that you can actually see what every single thing costs us to make, which I'm sure a lot of our competitors look at, I've heard that they look at, uh, but it made sense to us, and no one's copied it to date because they can't, um, because their margins are much higher. So it's, it's sort of this benefit, and it's like you ask the question instead of why, you ask the question why not. Um, and we tend to do that a lot. Why not, why not just do this this way and see what happens um, and transparent pricing and uh, you know, not running a typical assortment strategy and launching items instead of collections, all of it has turned out, You know, there's a lot of things that haven't turned out well. I'm sure you have a list of them, um, but uh, as do you, but it just, you gotta Tell do me. those to find out the right ones. No, what, you do everything I well. Yeah, that, sorry. Yeah. Forgot, Moj is perfect. <laughs>
6: <laughs> Obviously, a few years into this, what is the most screwed up thing about the industry that you're in that you did not expect before you before you entered it
5: uh, I, mean, in- I don't know that I want to go there, but like <clears throat> yeah, how politically correct should we be um, i mean uh, if- There's a lot. I'll start with a few, which is, I mean, on the most basic level, the the reality of pricing and how it's done, the fact that when you buy it outlet, everything's made for outlet and people don't realize that for the most part. I think that's pretty uh, bordering on fraudulent to the customer. Um, And yet it happens all across the business and outlet is a huge percentage of people's business to date. Um, That whole, it's a scheme. I think there are a lot of schemes in retail.
6: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Could, yeah you know. I think I mean the outlet and the pricing and just the lack of transparency around things being 40% off every day and people not having a really good sense of what something is worth because of it. I think um, is a challenge. I think the you know just the steep discounting the outlet channels, but even just across the board, um, has just created a lot of distrust in retail. That um, you know Everlane is doing a lot of good to correct, and you know I hope that we can also. I mean, what are some other things? You know, I think just the the cycle of how products are made is really broken. And Mm -hmm. so, um, you know, for example, what what's normal is that you're placing orders for things months and months and months in advance, like nine months in advance of when you're going to sell it. And it would be much better if you could just be. Make placing those orders quicker and then you would end up with less end of season product and you would end up with less product that people that's waste. Um, And, you know, I think especially in the higher end, you know, what people do with that waste is also kind of criminal. There's a lot of places where when product doesn't sell, it's burned or destroyed. Um, And, you know, I think our solution to that at Stitch Fix is like, let's use data to buy the right product in the first place so that we can end up with less waste at the end of the season. But I think being able to think about how can we, how can we better? be better is at an industry of making sure that you know the products that we make are going to be cherished and loved and have homes and um and you know do do better in making sure that we're not creating a lot of things that have no home
5: wow nice
0: yeah
3: what you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on bomba socks underwear and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds yeah Swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
1: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef grade range recently and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.
6: Moj, what do you think the beauty industry's biggest flaw is?
5: Where do you start?
7: (laughs) It's really tough right now because you have the consumer that's pretty obsessed with newness and trend and they want things now and they want things, um, you know, within a few weeks or a few months and the timelines around most Um, mass production is you know 18 months and so um, you know I think the larger holding companies are really controlling manufacturing partnerships and making it very difficult for young indie brands to move their product manufacturing forward in these shorter timelines and so I think you're gonna see a big trend towards the elbowing out of indies out of the manufacturing partnerships. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look at the Um, largest beauty brands in the world. They're all run by men. Um, There's a real absence of women and diversity sort of from the top down from the business and creative point of view. So I think the good news about the beauty industry is that it's really a fire that cannot be put out. I think the consumer is absolutely in love with some of the um, amazing brands that we've seen over the past few years and they're they're really excited and passionate about them. Um, or K-Beauty, they're really excited and passionate about. And so I think um, figuring out how those brands have better partnerships with manufacturers without um, the larger conglomerates stepping in um, to sort of alter those timelines or those product chains is going to be really the next sort of big battle. Um, and it's, it's really what prohibits the newness of brands right now. That's really interesting. Yep. Yeah.
2: I would add on, I mean, I think it's the beauty and the lack of diversity in leadership and beauty is, I mean, it's staggering how many of the CEOs of beauty companies are men, and it's the same thing in apparel. When you look at the apparel companies and you look at the um, the top public companies, or top hundred companies, I did analysis once and it's like a very, very sm- small handful, fewer, finger, fewer than you have fingers, maybe fewer than one hand are led by women. And this is an industry where the vast majority of the workforce is women, and yet they're not getting to the top. And so I think you, know, you don't have to be in the industry to see that, um, but it's a, it's a big challenge of this industry. And I think a big reason why companies like ours can be successful. I mean, you're seeing like there
7: are all these bigger brands, sort of indies, coming to the forefront. Like Anastasia, Kylie, Kim, Fenty. Like, uh, there's, uh, br- there's so many new brands coming. Um, you know, the founder of N Y X was a woman named Tony Co. Like, there's so many great new brands that have sort of pushed their way to the front. But it's really against the odds, um, and they're, you know, without massive funding, and they're really sort of doing a lot of these things
6: um, on the D L. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we have a really good BOF Professional article about this topic, and so if you're not a member of BOF Professional, you should sign up and, and read it. It's super interesting. But, okay, so you're based here. You love being here because it allows you to think differently and run your business in the way you wanna run it. But you obviously need the markets in New York in Europe, and Europe and the relationships there, I'm assuming, to make this business work. So how do you interact with New York or if, if you're Moj with, with Europe, in, do you have a lot of employees in those places? Are you guys traveling to these places constantly? Like what do you still need from New York and Europe that you can't get here? Yeah. I, mean, I mean, I feel like we all live in a, we're expected
7: to be on 24 seven lifestyle. Um, for better or for worse. I think the consumer certainly behaves that way. Um, I think I did 60 flights last year. I was gone, uh, unfortunately, like 100 nights of you know, the year. So there's a lot of travel, um, but we really made sure we had good investors and partners in both New York and Europe um, to, to sort of have boots on the ground. But I, I don't, I mean, we all live sort of in a global economy and a global economy at this point. So there, you have to move. <laughs>
5: Yeah, I don't know, I'll, I'll say our uh, hands down our largest customer base is in New York. Um, the world is a little bit flatter today. I traveled maybe uh, six times to New York last year but nowhere near as many times as you. Um, the Instagram social conversations you can have with your customer via digital, you can communicate. And so New York happens to be our largest customer base, but we're sort of open to anywhere being our largest customer base. Um, And so it's less about New York and more about where the customer is. Um, And because they're there, we do go there all the time, but we don't really have a team there anymore.
6: You don't, but you used to have a team there, right?
5: We used to have a design team there. um, And the premise was that you had to, you know, designers don't want to move out west. Um, You have to keep a team out in um, New York, and that's the only way we'll get good designers. Uh, We've realized more and more that it just, if we want to get, does not, I mean, it can be about the best designers, but it's about the designers that want to be at Everlane. Yeah. Um, that we just have to have our office on the West Coast with our team. Um, so they're all moving out August 1st.
6: Oh, wow. Yeah. And now everybody wants to live out here. so. It's true. Makes sense. Trina, have, you have some people in. New we York have a, now. yeah,
2: we have a small team in New York. Although we also have a team in Austin, Texas, and a team in Pittsburgh, and so you know we have teams kind of across the country, um, but we do have a small team there. Um, you know, for us, New York, there's there's always kind of business reasons to go there. We have a big ben- vendor base that's based out of New York, um, and definitely from a media perspective, I think there's just you, you're a lot more efficient with your time that you spend in um, with media relationships in New York, and so that part has been important. But you know, by and large, I think when I started the company, I was worried that we'd be missing a lot of things. And, you know, there's definitely a couple of things that give you good reasons to go to New York. And I'm sure we all love going to New York. So that's, that's fine. Um, But, you know, I think the world has become a much more connected place and there's so much more that you can do from here. Um, And there's a lot, there's a lot of great diverse people here. So, you know, I think we're dependent on a lot less in New York than I thought we would be.
6: And even when you were going in, so about a year ago, you went and started to bring in kind of higher end brands.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of those brands are in New York, but we've always had, you know, a good set of brands in New York. Yeah. We also have some brands in L.A. Um, so, it, you know, it definitely like there's our buying team spends a lot of time in New York. They spend time in L.A. too. And, um, you know, it's, it's just part of our business.
5: We had, I think, two or three moments where we almost said, let's just move to New York in the like, first two to three years and it was just because you felt like there was there's definitely a density of people it's harder it's like it's definitely harder to build it out here um, and to get it going but once you do you just have such an opportunity to attract talent because people don't have that option on the west coast and there are plenty of people interested out here for that uh, Mm -hmm. for those kinds of gigs
6: from the consumer side when you're thinking international I'm sure you have a ton of demand for international. You guys have done some international yeah, stuff, limited, right? we're pretty though, yeah. And you have done Beautycon in London. What, what was the benefit to that? Th- to being in London? Yeah. I
7: mean, it's such an amazing market for us. Um, it's a really international market. Um, it's opened up partnerships for us um, in South Korea, in China, Japan. Uh, We've been to Dubai. Um, Mm -hmm. Really think of London as sort of like the global hub of sort of Europe and everything, uh, sort of the further east of there, right? So,
5: We have one of our um, investors, Natalie Massanit. She sort of says that, uh, it's, and we don't do international, and we've sort of changed our opinion now because of her, which is like it's kind of, for our brand, it's a bit anti-modern. The world is flat, and yet you're not shipping internationally. Um, And Instagram is global. Everything is global. Why are we sitting here just shipping to the US? It's a little bit more complicated, but not a lot more complicated. So that's something we're changing.
6: So you are going to start shipping internationally? Yeah. So you guys did kind of an experiment with it, right?
5: It's, you know, sometimes we try to reinvent things that don't need to be reinvented. Okay. That's that, not knowing what you're doing. I know there
6: are people from the BOF office that ship stuff to our office in New York and we bring over their Everlane to London, so. Yeah, maybe that's why they're very happy.
5: Yeah, that's, (laughs) we'll take it. We have a lot of uh, forwarders in China, too. We see a lot of that.
2: Oh, wow. How, what is Stitch Fixes? Yeah, we don't do international. For, for us, it's a lot more complicated, complicated. <laughs> to do international. We have to have Um, distribution that you don't want to pick customs both ways and so we have to have distribution in country the product has to be personalized for that country our stylists have to be in country so unfortunately it's not just figuring out the shipping distribution side it's it's a lot more work so you know there's definitely interest and you know something we're excited about but we just launched the um, we just announced our launch of kids um, which is coming soon so we kind of have our plate full right now for for expansion a lot of stitch fix copycats? Or? You know, there aren't really. And it's, you know, it's always been one of these things where like we know the business works. Now we're a public company, like everyone can see that the business works and, you know, we've been kind of Um, You you know, you feel like you're either the smartest person or the dumbest person when you're doing something no one else is doing. And um, there's an element that kind of still feels that way. Um, We've seen, you know, a little bit, but really not much. And I think the inventory challenge of it is very real. It's like, there's a lot of capital that's required to be able to have the right size and inseam of white jeans for anybody who shows up and wants white jeans. And so, you know, I think that that's an element of it, but we, um, we haven't seen a lot. Earlier, you mentioned that
6: a lot of the kind of more traditional retailers have either attempted to do a similar thing that you guys are doing or and failed or not attempted at all. Why do you think that is? I, we just wrote about Sephora is launching an experimental event that that is not Beautycon. What? <laughs> so I'm curious to know when that sort of thing happens. I'm, I'm sure it's gonna for be completely different. I'm, sure but I'm actually excited for them to see how it goes. So so how do you, would, how do you handle that? Because they have a ton of money. I mean, you've raised what, $11 million?
7: Authenticity.
5: Or?
6: I mean, look, they came
7: to us to work on it together. We went through 10 months of talking about working together. They acted like it was such a collaboration and we were enthusiastic to collaborate and in the end, they chose what they chose. And, um, you know, what is it? Imitation is the highest form of flattery? I'm super flattered. Um, You know, they're a very large company um, and I think they're going to find that it is very difficult to recreate Culture, authenticity, and the kind of connection we've created with our community—that's um, a lot of time and years invested on our side. Um, we know we're going to crack the code on experiential retail. We know we already have. We know that we can take that to a digital audience, and I think that must be quite frustrating for them. Yeah. So I,
6: I wish them sort of all the best. Michael, why can't anybody get basics right?
5: People have copied certain pieces of Everlane. I mean, but it's It's hard like it's simple, but it's really not that simple because we spend a lot of time doing very few things Um, And if you spend a lot of time doing very few things, it's just you have to get every piece of it, right? The pricing's right. You know our you know denim is a perfect example. It's $68 Japanese made in a factory that cleans out all the water uh, and that takes a lot of time and it's really hard to do and to get the fit right. And we only did it in four styles, three styles to launch. It just every detail counts and every piece of the story counts. And then we do that a few times a year with big things. And then we do it with, it's just hard. It's a lot of detail. Um, and that's, I think that attention to detail is challenging.
6: It's interesting. If you look at Facebook, they have, adopted methods of smaller companies and ruined those smaller companies, but it's harder in apparel. I mean, Amazon is probably the company that's trying to do what Stitch Fix does as closely. Why do you think it, it hasn't clicked for them? Maybe it has. I, I haven't seen their internal, internal sales, but...
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, Amazon's experimenting with ways that you can try on and try clothes more easily. Um, I actually think it's one of the exciting parts about our industry and beauty is less fragmented, but apparel is so fragmented that even Amazon, who is selling, you know, tons and tons of, you know, in many cases, basics, but tons and tons of clothes, like they have single digit percentage market share. And like you think about Facebook and you think about people's time spent on social networks and Facebook has like a majority of, of market share. And so I think you know, we're, it's really one of the great parts about being in this huge 300 billion plus dollar industry where no one has more than 10% market share and the largest players have high single digits so that it really creates room for consumers who care about X to have a brand and consumers who care about Y to have a brand. And so you know, I think we spend more time competing with ourselves, I think, than really thinking too much about what everybody else is doing. Yeah. We have time
6: for one more question and I'm really curious to know, I interview a lot of people. I've interviewed like half of the people in this room before and everyone brings up all three of your companies. If I'm doing a beauty story, beauty comes up. If I'm doing some sort of fashion or apparel, Stitch Fix and Everlane come up all the time. Where do you see your segment of the industry going? What, What do you think is next for retail or brand or beauty?
2: I mean i you know, on the retail side, like I um and this comes back to a little bit of why being in California or near Silicon Valley is important. Like, I think there's a macro trend, which is that all companies need to figure out how to use technology, not just to succeed, but like to exist in the future. And so like Uber is a transportation company. Airbnb is a hospitality company. Stitch Fix is a retail company. And I think, you know, in order to figure out how you can survive, you have to embrace that. And so I think embracing technology and innovation is, is going to have to be normal and part of what we do well in order to exist?
5: I'll say to one that um, it is getting easier and easier to communicate with people every day. Um, you know, texting to Facebook messaging to whatever you want and that is um, only going to continue um, and your ability to have conversations with your customer, use their feedback, get smarter um, and improve the brand every day. Um, that's a must. And the other one as a result of the fact that it's easier to communicate and market to your customer. There's this general theory and reality that um, I think there's a big question. Will there be, um, how many more billion dollar brands will there be? Um, It's much more about the bifurcation and finding um, that exact customer and giving them what they want. And if you believe in that, you believe in a world that'll probably have many smaller brands rather than one large brand that used to exist.
7: I think um, we're in an era where communities and tribes are really what's driving companies and brands forward and I think when you think about the kinds of tribes that we're trying, that we're now seeing, they're really about niche audiences becoming mass. And so um, I think you're seeing that in sort of every industry um, across the board. And so for beauty, I think you're going to continue to see people behave. Really organized around their tribes and communities because these brands have now really taken on a whole new meaning for them. Um, I also think we're in an amazing time where experiential retail, commerce, and content are really playing with each other. And I think, um, you know, as Instagram becomes more of a marketplace, as uh, you see the sort of evolution of larger retail into um, experiential and retail understanding that it needs to be experiential. Um, And I think it's just a great time for the consumer because they're really getting to experience a sense of community in a whole new different way. So I really think it's about the tribes around brands and niche
6: audiences driving sort of overall mass um, outcomes for brands. It's a really exciting time. Thank you guys so much. This was great and thank Thank all of you.
1: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.
4: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?